Father, we thank you so much for your amazing story. Thank you for how over the last eight months you have poured out your spirit upon us and opened our hearts and our minds and all of our lives to who you are, to who you created us to be, to how sin separates us from you and our God-given identity, and yet how you have radically, passionately pursued us with your love and done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you for the ways that you've moved us to respond gratefully to you. Lord, we thank you for your story, for our place within it, and for the ways that you are empowering us and motivating us to speak your story to others anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. So Lord, as we come to the end of this series, we pray that once again, you would speak to us, that we would see you, Jesus, that you would draw us to yourself for life that is very good here and now and for all eternity. We pray, Jesus, for your glory, for your fame, and in your name. Amen. Please be seated. So as we come to the end of this message series, eight months, this is the 30th message in the Story of God series. It's been really good. It's been really helpful to me. Um, I know that one of the fun things that has been happening in my life just as a dad is um, on Wednesday nights being able to just tell the story of God around the dinner table and my kids now even asking me, hey, what's the story tonight? Um, It's amazing as we immerse ourselves in God's story, not only how it builds up our lives, but as we begin to learn to practice it and to tell it and to share it with others, it is um, the word of God that builds faith and that brings life to all those around us. This morning is um, our final narrative in the story of God, and we're going to look at the reality of judgment of hell, and of heaven. And it's not something that uh, is talked too much about. Um, There's a lot of confusion about judgment in heaven and hell as a result of the church not taking appropriate responsibility to talk about it and to lead people in an understanding of what Jesus says and what the whole scriptures um, talk about. But not us. We're going to go right into it this morning. Because Jesus promises that he's going to return. And his coming in victory with great glory and power is going to be seen by all people, every tribe and tongue and nation. And as Jesus comes, he's going to bring this age to an end. Jesus says that he's going to return unexpectedly, that we should be prepared at all times and in all places for his return, but that only the Father knows exactly when that's going to be. But that on the last day, he's going to come and judge. He's going to judge those who are alive, and he's going to judge those who have already died. And the thrust of 
the narrative this morning is that Jesus's verdict for every man, woman, and child will be based solely upon their relationship with him. And meanwhile, the scriptures say that God patiently, patiently waits for many to repent and believe. So I don't know, as, as you begin to think about judgment, about the end of the age, about Jesus' second coming, about the reality of heaven and hell, maybe, you know, it brings out some emotions or raises some walls around your heart. So I, I really want to encourage you to ask the Lord to speak to you and to minister to you and to show you who he is and what um, he is doing in the world for his glory and for our freedom and joy. Maybe, maybe you just don't even want to think about it. I get that. Um, it's, there's a lot going on um, every day in our lives, and sometimes we just don't want to think about eternity, but you know, we shouldn't really wait to think about that and to have conversations about that. Um, maybe you don't think you can be sure of your salvation, but the good news is that in Christ you can be sure. Maybe you don't feel like you're worthy of heaven, but again, the good news, the promise of God in Christ is that you are in him. You have been made worthy. And here's the reality as we engage this narrative this morning. It's a sober reality, um, but it's, it's filled with the love of God. And it's this, that either you acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord and inherit life with God forever, the life that we were made to experience, or we reject Jesus as Savior and Lord and inherit separation from God forever, eternal death and the absence of God and all things of God, which is a consequence of sin. So the question this morning is, will you think about it? And as you think about it, where are you placing your faith? Where are you setting your hope? And by the Holy Spirit, may our hope be set on the risen Christ this morning. The divine narrative continues like this. At the end of the world, Jesus will come again in glory and all the angels with him. He will take his place upon his throne and all the nations will be gathered before his presence. And then he will separate people like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There will be two lines. Jesus will place the sheep at his right, and he will place the goats on his left. has nothing to do with the seating this morning. <laughs> then Jesus will judge the living and the dead in accordance to their relationship with him. And Jesus will say to the sheep on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of of the world. And then the righteous will go into eternal life where they will forever shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom. And Jesus will turn to the goats on his left and he will say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And the wicked will go away into eternal punishment where they will forever weep and gnash their teeth, consciously and continually enduring sin, evil, and death. And so that we might set our hope on the risen Christ, 
and the love that God has demonstrated towards us in him, the Lord gives the Apostle John a vision. It's a vision of the reality of heaven. And so John wrote down this revelation. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. And then out of the crowd, one of the elders asks, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And a resounding voice comes back. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then a loud voice comes out and says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. It's the story we call judgment, hell, and heaven. It's a beautiful picture. It's an image of a reality that only the Lord has seen. And so when he comes, he makes sure that we understand the reality, the destiny that he has come and lived and died and been raised again that we might inherit and experience with him forever.
And yet, even so, the reality of God's judgment is difficult for us to contemplate and deal with and even accept. It can be difficult for us to accept because we so often judge God's actions according to our own notions of what is good and right and perfect. And so what tends to happen is that our arrogance creeps up and out of our independent spirit and we question God. And we think, no, 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 if I were God, I would do it this way. I've got a better way. And yet, as he so faithfully does time and time again, God responds like he does in Isaiah 29. Hey, you turn things upside down. As if the potter were thought to be like the clay. How foolish can you be? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? In his book, uh, The Great Divorce, I don't know if anybody has read that book, yeah, by C.S. Lewis. Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, okay, then your will be done. Lewis's point is that when someone says, I don't want to have a relationship with God, they ultimately get their way. And sadly, the unbeliever's wish to reject God, to continue in rebellion against God, to be away from God will turn out to be their worst nightmare. God's judgment is very difficult for us to just pause and contemplate, to understand and to accept, but it is so important for our understanding of who God is and who he created us to be, what sin does to our God-given identity and what Jesus has come to do for us that we cannot do for ourselves so that we might live in grateful response here and now and for an eternity in his presence around his throne. There is a final judgment because of who God is. That's why there's a final judgment. Because God is holy and he does all things that are good and right and perfect. And God's holiness means that only those whose sin has been cleansed and purified by the blood of the Lamb of God can enter into his presence for eternity. And because God does everything that is good and right and perfect, those who remain guilty in their sin will be sentenced to eternal death. And those who have been justified by grace through faith in Christ Jesus will be set free for eternal life. Apart from the judgment of God, God could not be consistent with who he is. God has a plan and he makes promises and he follows through and that's why he's so trustworthy. And so Jesus is clear about a final judgment and he's clear about the eternal consequences of being on his right or being on his left. Jesus is clear about the terrible reality of hell. And we have people People in the church in North America who want to confuse us on this issue because they would rather it be a different way. 
But we look at what Jesus teaches. We look at the whole counsel of the word of God. And the reality is, is that Jesus speaks of hell as a real place. And honestly, I'm super glad that he does because it's not left to our imagination. And so throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus describes hell with basically three images, three terrible images. Fire, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. You heard that in the gospel this morning. The fire that Jesus describes, the fire is the forever physical punishment for rebellion against God. Hell is described as a lake of fire. That's not a pretty picture. That's not a comforting picture. That is a warning. It's the final destination of those who reject Jesus. It's the state of complete separation from God, the never-ending and inescapable place of perpetual physical torment and suffering. Jesus says hell is going to be like that. He also says that in hell there is weeping. And the, the weeping that Jesus is talking about is that of desperate sorrow. Sorrow because of separation from God and all that's good for all eternity. Sorrow because of banishment from the presence of the most wonderful being in the universe. Sorrow because of exclusion from everything of value and beauty and importance and worth. Sorrow because there'll be a sea of people. But everyone will feel terribly alone. Without companionship, without intimacy, without love. Plagued by desire and yet knowing nothing of fulfillment. Living forever but no longer wanting to. Weeping with eternal sadness and depression and with no hope of relief. Jesus talks about hell as a place of fire, a place of weeping and a place of gnashing of teeth. It's an image that conveys the agony induced by a guilty conscience. Have you ever been so upset with yourself that you just grit your teeth and uh, gnashing of teeth. If you've ever known deep personal failure, if you've ever lost something of immeasurable value, if you've ever felt the grinding pain of rejection or the tragic end of a significant relationship, then you know a drop in the bucket of what hell will be like, where there will be gnashing of teeth. To be in hell will be hell. Eternally tortured by your conscience, 
undeniably guilty about what you should have done but weren't willing to do, ceaselessly second-guessing what could have been and deeply regretting a life spent avoiding, denying, and rejecting Jesus. Jesus emphasizes this terrible fate of those who reject him for one reason. It's because he does not want anyone to experience it. He doesn't want anyone to experience the terrible reality of the consequences of unforgiven sin. And so he teaches with compassion and with clarity about the reality of hell so that no one will perish, but rather turn and believe in him and have life. It's the Father's heart that he wants everyone to come to repentance and belief that we might be saved. We talk a lot about salvation, but we don't talk a whole lot about what we're being saved from. Jesus saves us from something. He saves us from the terrible reality of hell, but he doesn't just save us from something. He saves us for something. He saves us for the redemptive life that he has given his son to experience, not just here and now, but for all eternity. Jesus saves us from hell, but he saves us for his kingdom here and now and for heaven for all eternity. That's our motivation for hearing the gospel, for continually to respond to the gospel and, and to share the gospel with everyone, everywhere, as often as we can. So Jesus teaches clearly about the reality of hell, but he also teaches really clearly about the glorious reality of heaven. And I am so glad because it's not left to our imagination. And it's not like some people would say that heaven is like, you know, a bunch of fat baby angels on a cloud worshiping God. And, you know, it's just not the reality of the story of God. It's not the picture that Jesus paints of what heaven is like. You heard the narrative. To be in heaven will be to live full, abundant life forever as it was with God in the beginning, heaven will be a return to his presence in the garden, and God will fully restore our intimate connection with him for all eternity. God's going to reopen access to the tree of life. Did you hear it? Healing every hurt, wiping away every tear, redeeming us and all of our pain to enjoy the fullness of his glory and the light of his love forever and once again there's going to be perfect love and perfect peace perfect harmony and perfect health perfect joy and perfect freedom life is going to be abundant and full and once again guess what very good very good and forever God will have things the way he's always wanted them to be that's why Jesus emphasizes this glorious hope 
It's because he wants everyone to believe in him and experience this eternal destiny. You know, you and I have a homesickness for heaven. Deep down, and the soul that God has created within us, with the life that he breathed in us, we are homesick for heaven. And far too often we misdiagnose our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is, is, is sex or drugs or alcohol or a new job or a raise or a spouse or that cabin in the mountains or whatever it is. But what we really want the desire that God has deposited deep within our souls is to return to the place we were originally created to enjoy in the company of the one who created us for him. We were made, we were redeemed for heaven and nothing less will satisfy us. That is our motive for continually hearing and responding and sharing and compelling people to repent and believe in the good news of grace and love that is in Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's okay to be uncomfortable with the idea of a holy God who will punish sin. Like that, there's some discomfort in that, in that simply because God is God and we are not. But if we reject God's wrath against our sin, the justifiable punishment that our sin deserves, then we're confused about the fundamental problem that Jesus saves us from and saves us for. Peace. Peace with God does not come automatically. Here's, here's the gospel. Y'all want some good news? The gospel is this, that... All of us have sinned and alienated ourselves from God. Instead of, of living the, the good, right, and perfect lives that is required for us to enjoy fellowship with God, each one of us has a record that's actually stained with sin. And as a result, we deserve to be totally separated from God and punished. So apart from Christ, our destiny is separation from God in the presence of hell forever. That is the bad news, but there's good news. It's the good news of the gospel. But understanding that the horror and the terror and the reality of hell is what makes the good news of the gospel, the sweetness of the love of Jesus and the reality of heaven so good. The good news is that God so loves us that he gave his very best so that we don't have to perish and spend eternity separated from him, but that we might have life and spend eternity enjoying him in his presence. And by sacrificing himself in our place on the cross, Jesus has made it possible for us to be restored to that right relationship with God. That is the hope of glory. That is the hope that is within us. That is our identity as the people of God and the church. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ, Paul writes to the church in Colossae. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through Christ's blood shed on a cross. It's why Paul will write the church in Rome, because of our faith in Christ, God has brought us into a place of undeserved privilege, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to his return and sharing in his glory. There's bad news, but there's good news, and the good news always trumps the bad news. And the good news requires a response. Responding to the good news of Jesus means admitting our sin and acknowledging there's no way we can earn God's approval by our own works. It means believing Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin when he died on the cross, that there it truly was finished, and there's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can subtract from it. It is done. He's done it for us on our behalf. And so in essence, believing in Jesus means trusting that he exchanged records with us at Calvary. What I mean by that is Jesus took our sinful record on himself and paid for it in full. And you know what he gives us? He gives us his perfect record, which opens the way to peace with God and eternal life in the presence of heaven forever. And when we believe in Jesus, when we accept his gracious gift of salvation, we'll grow closer to him in the power of the Holy Spirit and we'll eagerly begin to desire to know him in the word and in prayer and in the fellowship of the church. And we can be assured that when he puts us in line, he's going to put us in line as sheep on his right because he's the good shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. We know his voice and we have followed him and he is bringing us to streams of living water into green pastures. And we should fear no evil. That is the hope that we have in Christ. And it's why our commission has such urgency. It's why the the church doesn't exist for itself, but exists for those who do not yet belong. It's why Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Go and make disciples and immerse them into this reality of a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and remind them everything that I have taught you. There's urgency as followers of Jesus with grace to live out this great commission. Why? So that every man, woman, and child along the Broadway corridor will have repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the marvelous light of his Son, saving them from hell, saving them for his redemptive purposes here and now and for eternity in his presence. That is the message that we hold. Those are the words of life that have transformed us and built us up and have been deposited within us, not to hold on to, but to give away. That is what it means to live on mission. We're a gospel community, making disciples, developing kingdom leaders to live on mission, to speak Jesus in love to as many people as possible, to serve as many people as possible into the presence of Jesus 
to shepherd as many people as possible into the line of people who believe in their hearts and confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our motivation in that urgency for that commission is the exact same as that of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That motivation is love. It's love. And that love makes a way. That love is a lifestyle. It's a commission and a sending, not a suggestion. And it's something that we have the privilege to cooperate with God and to put into practice every day. We've been sent out to speak the gospel of Jesus, to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus, to hold out the words of life that others will share in the hope of glory with us here and now and for eternity. Paul sums it up really well like this, and I can't think of a better way to end this message series than 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And that means, as followers of Jesus with grace, as the church with a capital C, we are missionaries sent out to make disciples, to develop kingdom leaders, and to share the gospel pushing back the kingdom of darkness and bringing in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the son that he loves. We're sent out to proclaim the victory of the kingdom of God, to reduce the lostness and unbelief of all of those around us by sharing the good news of forever life in Jesus for all those who repent and believe. And we're living out that mission through our participation in life groups, among our neighbors and classmates and coworkers through snack packs for kids at the farmer's market on Saturdays. God doesn't call certain people to be missionaries. God calls his people to be missionaries. And that is who we are. It's how the story of God came to us. And it's how God calls us to carry the story of God to others. So as we end this series. I just want to pray over you one of my favorite prayers from Anglican Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, the prayer for missions. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to a knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name.